So in the course of me moving to the desert, I started to sprout a lot. And within 30 days, most of my calories were coming from sprouts that I was growing in one cubic foot. And it was blowing my mind. And the fact that you can grow sprouts without soil, without sunshine, in days, not weeks, months, or years, was just the most mind-boggling, extraordinary thing that I could imagine. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage, at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work. From transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Eating healthy has become a big business. Or rather, getting people to eat in a way they believe to be healthy has become a big business. For every consumer looking to adopt healthier eating habits like more plant-based diets, less dairy, or more nutrient-dense superfoods, there's an industry growing up around it looking to cash in and they're getting quite good at it. In the 1990s, the global health and wellness food industry was worth about $4 billion. By 2016, it has skyrocketed to more than $700 billion. Today, some analysts predict the industry will be valued at over a trillion dollars by 2027. That's why I so enjoyed speaking with Doug Evans, who is my guest today. Doug has spent most of his career as a health and wellness food entrepreneur. In 2000, he co-founded a successful raw food market in New York City called Organic Avenue. Later, he founded Juicero, a company that produced a Wi-Fi-enabled cold-pressed juicer. For more than 20 years, Doug had been a pioneer in the plant-based health movement, but his latest endeavor has little to do with splashy new products or upcharging for organic produce. While the health food industry continues to explode around him, Doug has scaled back. Today, he is the world's leading advocate for one of the simplest and cheapest foods on the planet, sprouts. Doug has been a raw vegan for most of his adult life. He spent years incorporating sprouts into whatever he cooked and ate. Today, they're the cornerstone of his diet and he wants the world to know it. He's the author of The Sprout Book, which tells the story of his sprout journey and gives lessons on how to cook and even grow them. In addition to being what he calls the ultimate superfood, they're also extremely easy and cheap to grow. In fact, Doug believes that sprouts could someday be the key to solving food insecurity and malnutrition around the world.
Doug was born and raised in New York City. Growing up in 1970s Manhattan, he and his family subsisted on what he calls a standard American diet, the processed foods, junk food, and fast food. For years, no one he knew gave any thought to what they put in their bodies as long as it tasted good. And sometimes even taste wasn't a criteria. I think my mother prepared most of the food. We grew up lower middle class, and I would say there was definitely food scarcity in the house because when my brother and I finally left home and we could afford to buy our own food, we both just overate. It was like, as soon as we could afford to eat and not have rations, we ate. So my mother prepped the food, very simple. We grew up in a house that I don't recall ever using salt and pepper myself and no spices. So we were as about as plain as you could be. And that wasn't for religious reasons or? No, I think it was just convenience. Like we were just, you know, struggling to put food on the table. And, you know, there's pretty much some animal product, most nights or pasta and bread and salad with iceberg lettuce and some cheap dressing. But food was very plain in our house. It was interesting. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke to Tyler Florence, um, chef, and he talked to us about taking frozen burritos and as a latchkey kid and boosting them, you know, adding more cheese and, you know, other ingredients to kind of bulk them up, and make them a little, you know, healthier. Did you have the inkling to boost anything up that your mom made or is that not in your memory? No, I think we just wanted to get more. I remember like mm. sneaking into the kitchen in the middle of the night eating like the whole Philadelphia cream cheese, like just wanting, you know, more fat and more sugar. Like a block of cream cheese? Yeah, just a block of cream cheese. <laughs> so let's talk about your next level. So you were in school. What were your favorite subjects or things that you were curious about as a kid growing up all the way through from K to 12? So this is really interesting, Donna. I was thrown out of practically every class and every school that I ever went to. So I, I had absolute no interest in being told what to do. I didn't want to do any homework. I didn't want to be in the classroom. And so I wanted to be outside. Whether it was nature now, I love being in nature. And whether it was in my early formative years, I wanted to be outside of the classroom, whether I was escaping to the river or to the train tracks or to the park or to the subways, just wherever I needed to be, I wanted to be outside of school and I did not want to be told what to do. Well, that's a, one of the definitely, I'm reading a book called The Entrepreneur's Faces <laughs> and that's definitely one of the traits of an entrepreneur, no surprise there. So you're precocious, which is good. What did you like about being outside? I liked the freedom. And it's interesting that I did not really relate to a lot of people, certainly not the most of the kids in my school. So I somewhat was attracted to the pirates, to the gang members, to the graffiti writers, to the drug dealers. So kind of outside of the realm where there was a new sense of community that wasn't predicated on the normal chain of command of the parents, the teachers, the principal. So just felt like free. And I felt more, in hindsight, I look back on, and maybe I was too busy judging, you know, the 
high quality students, the kids that were doing their homework. And maybe I had such low self-esteem that I didn't think that I could do the work. So rather than have to fail, I found a coping mechanism, which was rebellion. And how did you tap into that to make that eventually like a good thing? I mean, it really never became a good thing until it totally blew up. I just got progressively worse as I got older. And by the time I was in my late teens, I was really in trouble. And I had friends who were dying, who were going to jail, who were in deep shit. And I made the decision that it was time for me to grow up. I was 17 years old. So I went and joined the U.S. Army as a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne. How did you reduce the decision in choosing the Army specifically? I had watched a lot of TV growing up, and I saw those commercials, Be All You Could Be, and those obstacle courses, and just looked like fun. And I thought, wow, I'm sloppy. I have no discipline. I'm not in good shape. That if I went into the Army, like my thought process is, It would be fun. I would get into shape. I would learn discipline. I would save all of my money. And then when I got out, then I could do whatever I want. And what year was this? That was 1983. Wasn't that about the time that movie Private Benjamin came out? Or was that maybe earlier? That was after Private Benjamin. You may have heard me talk about that. Like that was my experience in the army before watching Private Benjamin, you know, with a cute blonde woman making jokes. Like that, I thought it was a joke. And it was much closer to Full Metal Jacket or Platoon than it was Private Benjamin. So it sounds like you weren't a fan of the Army. I hated the Army. Like I thought the Army was the most crazy thing. I was so used to as a teenager and as a kid being able to talk my way in or talk my way out of anything. And in the Army, every time I opened my mouth, I was just doing push-ups and sit-ups, and no one wanted to hear what I had to say, and they did not treat me very well. And I remember going back to the drill sergeant on day one, and I said, you've got the wrong guy. I want out. I want to go home. I'm going to be a good boy. I'll go to community college. I'm going to be nice to my mother. And the drill sergeant looked me in the eye and goes, there is no way out. If you leave here, There's no bars on the windows, but you could leave, but you'll be a fugitive and they will find you and then you will be incarcerated and you will be doing hard labor. So private, get out of my office. And that was a real like awakening moment for me, realizing the decision that I made to join the army because I was soft. I thought I was hard. I went to the army. I realized like I was soft. So let's talk about food. When you were in the army, what was the food like there? Well, I mean, the food was bland and salty. And a lot of what we ate were the equivalent of sea rations or meals ready to eat, which was this dehydrated or freeze-dried packaged garbage where they would heat seal it into what looks like black contractor garbage bag. And it was just awful. It was awful. I remember living for a time when we could go off base and I could get some good fast food. 
McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, Taco Bell, like any food other than the military food. And were you always on base or were you in that period of time we're getting into like almost that pre-Gulf War stuff, right? Were you stationed in the U.S. on a base or did you get deployed? No, I was always in the U.S. I was at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. I was on Fort Benning, Georgia. I was permanently stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and really places where I have so much respect for people in the military, for what they go through and the sacrifices that they make, because it's really very little upside of being in the military. So what did it teach you? How many years were you in? I was in the army for less than two years. I was in there a relatively short period of time, but I learned my lesson. And the lessons that I learned were discipline and confidence. And so I believe, and I learned this really in the military, that all information exists in the universe and is available to anyone who seeks it with earnest desire. So I really felt that I could, like if there was a wall, I could get over the wall, under the wall, through the wall, I could take the wall apart. But if my will was strong enough that I would be able to get through that wall. So you get out of the army. She's still pretty young. So what, what's next? What do you do after that? So I really liked graffiti before I went into the army. And the closest thing to writing graffiti was graphic design. And I remember being in Barnes & Noble on 18th Street and Broadway in New York City, flipping through graphic design books. And I found a book by this designer named Paul Rand. And Paul had designed the logos for IBM, ABC, UPS, Westinghouse, and you know, just an incredible body of work, incredible work. And it was so simple. And his work was not complex execution-wise. It was very provincial of the execution. But what I loved about his work was the intellectual thought process that he employed in solving design problems and solving business problems with design. I found it fascinating when I looked, like a lot of times if you see a logo, it's pretty, right? Or it's illustrated. If you look at almost anything that Paul Rand designed, it was solving a very complicated problem in the most simple way with a logo that would be memorable and attractive. So I just fell in love with this man's thought process. And I'm lucky that he was a 70-year-old man, or I might have been you know, a stalker, right? If he were a younger woman or something. But because he was a 70-year-old man who was cantankerous, I was able to apply my full military focus to creating an opportunity to go work for this master. And I worked for him for seven years as an unpaid intern slash apprentice. So how did the design industry evolve from his time to your time? Well, I watched the entire transition of the industry. And you said you worked at the back of a print shop and in the type shop. I watched an entire industry shift from analog to digital, from black and white to color, 
and watch the proliferation of the desktop computer obliterate an entire industry of printers, type shops, plate makers, like the entire industry was obliterated. And I remember seeing how the internet obliterated the fax machine and the telegraph machine and all these things. And we're at the precipice of watching the crypto and blockchain eliminate and obliterate everything we know today about the banking system. And so at the time, you look at the existing companies and you think like there's no way that they're going to fail. And then you watch them collapse, implode, disintegrate. And I watched that at least two times. So now I look at it and I see the struggle, you know, for institutions to hold on and people to cash in. And, and like the example of PayPal saying, you know, oh, you can now use cryptocurrency and you could buy Bitcoin and Litecoin and Ethereum, but you can't transfer it out of their platform and you can't transfer it into their platform, that they're just trying to control it in a way that will end up being their demise. And so sitting there watching that was very powerful. Did you lean into the kinds of changes you saw or were you just doing your own thing? Well, I started to look at how these tools were going to change the industry. So I was really at the forefront of seeing how like Apple had introduced the laser printer, which was basically a digital copier that had a brain. And the computer, the Macintosh then, could talk to this laser printer and create things that were never created before on a computer. And so then I did the digital printing world, and that was my world. And then my aunt got diabetes. And they chopped off her feet below her ankles. And to me, like, I wasn't having a suicidal moment because they weren't my feet. But the thought of losing that mobility, like, when I was thinking of trying to relate to that circumstance, I thought, like, wow, like, would life even be worth living if you couldn't walk? And then my uncle got heart disease. And my other uncle got heart disease. And then my mother got cancer and died. And my father got heart disease and died in the same hospital as my mother. So, and then my brother became overweight, obese, diabetic, and had the first of three strokes and a heart attack. So I thought like 1999, right, that I thought like my life was doomed. I thought like I was finally, you know, successful to an extent financially, but that my life and my days were numbered because of the gene. His family's health problems would be a turning point for Doug. Despite his success as a designer, he realized he still wasn't taking very good care of himself. His work had him on the road where he would load up on fast food. And after a long day or a job well done, he says he would reward himself with junk food. So watching what happened to his family served as a wake-up call 
and eventually he made a decision that would change his life. In 1999, I made the decision to stop eating junk. I gave up eating all cooked food, processed food, candy, junk food, ice cream, Chinese food, Thai food, Japanese food, fried food, all that junk I gave up. And in a two-week period, I went from eating like a duck off the street in Chinatown to vegetarian, vegan, raw vegan, and that was 22 years ago. So some of the foods you named, I mean, uh, categories of food, there's some great foods. Like you can go to, you know, Chinese market and get green beans and lots of amazing mushrooms and things. So you could still eat Chinese food. You just have to eat, eliminate a lot of things. Yeah, but I think the heart of the Chinese food that I ate was Chinese fast food takeout, which was heavy sauces, which was spare ribs, which were fried dumplings, which were fried rice. I mean, you could see the grease and the oil dripping off of it. So Not good. Like, Not good. I remember egg foo young, you know, with pork in it. I mean, that was my experience with Chinese food, you know, with uh, the little fortune cookies at the end. And there was nothing healthy about that. So even today, like, I won't eat anything remotely like that. Even... I'm sure, like, I eat Chinese fruit, right? I like lychees, I like juju berry, juju dates. I like a lot of bok choy and um, Chinese vegetables and Chinese fruit. But that they're more in the botanical nature than in the processed nature. So did you declare yourself vegetarian in, in 1999 or? Vegan, vegan. I declared myself as raw vegan. So now you're, <laughs> your military discipline came in to play. Oh, 100%. And I'm still raw vegan, right? 22 years later, I'm still raw vegan. But now I'm raw vegan, but mostly living food vegan because I'm eating mostly sprouts and fruits. So at least 50% of my diet are living foods because sprouts are alive. Yeah, so let's talk about, just to educate, there's vegetarianism, there's vegan, and then there's total green. Can you break it down? Yeah. I mean, vegetarianism, right, is no animal, no meat, no fish, no flesh. So vegetarians will still eat dairy and they'll still eat eggs. They won't eat flesh, right? So no meat or no fish. Vegan is no animal products at all. So the vegans, no honey, no dairy, no eggs, no cheese, and no meat or fish or flesh or seafood. Or as I was told, nothing with a mother. Nothing with a mother is a good thing. But vegan is a little stricter because vegan is nothing that came out of a mother, right? So the, the definition of vegan that I like is less about the animal, but more about nothing that involves the exploitation of a sentient being. So that was the vegan, you know, part. So stealing eggs from a chicken is not vegan, right? Drinking milk, you know, is not vegan because they're stealing the, the milk from the cow. But when I went to is raw vegan, and there's probably a stage between regular vegan and raw food vegan, which is whole food plant-based. So, because there's a lot of vegan junk food, I hear people say that, 
Oreos are vegan, right? But they're probably not a health food, right? So whole food plant-based is basically very similar to my beliefs where it's whole plant food, no salt, oil, sugar, very clean, where you're eating things in their whole format. And I'm just taking a little further being raw. I cannot be convinced that an Oreo is a vegan product. And it's just a little extreme. A a good marketeer maybe can do that. But seriously, Donna, if you're an ethical vegan, there's nothing wrong with an Oreo, right? It depends on whether you're vegan for health reasons, for environmental reasons, or for ethical reasons. So I think it's very common that I know a lot of vegans that would have no problem eating Oreos or Doritos or things like that, providing like they didn't even have traces of milk powder or animal products in them. So tell me about sprouts. When does sprouts become your focus? If you think about sprouts, there would be no plant life on the planet. There would be no life on the planet if seeds didn't germinate and sprout. And since the beginning of time, seeds were germinating and growing into mature vegetables and mature fruit trees and the like. And my discovery of sprouts came from necessity. I moved to the Mojave Desert near Joshua Tree. I pitched a tent and I was eating out of my cooler. And then about a day into it, as my cooler was going on to empty, I was like, oh, okay, let me just go on to Google. And I typed vegan near me. And it was a big goose egg. There was nothing there. And I had to drive three hours that day, round trip, till I could get food. I want to go back really quickly to when you made it from New York to California and what brought you to California. So what brought me to California was just the gold rush, the idea of entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley. And I had a business and I had a big idea. And then we received financing from Silicon Valley and they wanted proximity to the management team. So it took me a millisecond to make the decision to move out from New York City to Silicon Valley. And I literally moved right into the valley. I moved into Menlo Park. And I lived in Menlo Park for a couple of years before I ultimately moved to San Francisco. And so it was really about you know pursuing opportunity and going wherever the mission uh, required. So did you leave your digital business back in New York or did you bring it, migrate it out to California? Once I had the insight and awareness of food and wealth, health as well, I actually started, I transitioned out of it. it. It was literally, I could no longer do it. Like I, every cell in my body was done with just doing, you know, work for other people. When I saw the opportunity to share what I knew about the whole food, plant-based diet and raw food. So my partner and I opened up a chain, started with one store and it expanded to a dozen stores in New York City, selling fresh, ripe, raw, organic juices, soups, smoothies, entrees, desserts with the common thread that everything was made out of raw fruits, vegetables, seeds, nuts, and seaweed. And what was the name of that business? That was called Organic Avenue. 
So Organic Avenue, and your entrepreneurship's kicking in here, Organic Avenue was primarily based in New York? All New York. All New York. We shipped a little bit, but, you know, we were definitely a New York-based local retailer. So you were like the Grisadas, but the healthier market. Yeah, I mean, probably more like Dean and DeLuca, you know, or the Balducci's at the time, but just very, you know, high-end premium. And you know, it was one of the things that I always felt bad that the products were so expensive, but in hindsight, they weren't expensive enough because we barely made any money, like because we were using all fresh organic produce that had a three-day, four-day shelf life. So it was totally unforgiving when you want to deal with things that have a very short shelf life that are premium and or organic. How many years did you have that business? 10 years, from 2002 to 2012. While he was still in New York, Doug was introduced to some investors with the Silicon Valley venture capital firm, Kleiner Perkins. Kleiner had begun investing in various green businesses and health and wellness food brands, and Doug thought there might be an opportunity to pursue his interest in Silicon Valley's elite startup scene. After years of serving cold-pressed juices at Organic Avenue, he had an idea for a smart Wi-Fi connected juice machine people could use in their home. Can we talk a little bit about Juicera and just your, your thought with that? I think if I look back on Juicera, we were just way ahead of our time. Like if I look at what the product was and the success of the product, we had sold thousands of machines. We had sold over a million servings, you know, in our first year, the business was doing a million dollars a month and growing, except it was just way ahead of its time. And we ended up just getting caught in the crossfires of Silicon Valley excess. And we probably had a bunch of marketing and positioning snafus where, you know, the narrative was Doug raises $120 million to create a $700 juicer for rich assholes. And you don't need the juicer because you could squeeze the pack by hand. And if you if you break that down, yes, I raised $120 million. Um, yes, you needed to be somewhat affluent in order to buy the machine or more importantly, sustain the subscription of $7 per serving. So that was an important part, you know, of the process. But if someone wanted fresh things, like had Juicero made it to COVID, it would have been very successful because we had world-class food safety. We had world-class packaging, distribution, and logistics. So there's probably no better way of having an essential business delivering a convenient serving of fruits and vegetables that were raw in a packaged format that worked with a hardware device. So unfortunately, we were just ahead of our time and got into a PR debacle that was PR1, right? Negative PR1. And the fact that, and I don't talk about this much, Donna, but the fact that Bloomberg said that you could squeeze the pack of produce 
with your hands and you didn't need the juicer would be as absurd as saying you could take your sweater, wash it in the kitchen sink with less soap, less water, and faster than using your washing machine. So if you bought a washing machine, you were an idiot because you already had a sink. And like you could take an espresso pod and tear it open and pour hot water over it and not require the machine. But we lived in a convenience culture. And what we had done with Juicero was made the experience of making a fresh, raw, organic juice. Like in two minutes, with no setup, no cleanup, the freshest produce. And it wasn't about the press. It was about the whole system where we were sourcing the organic produce. We were triple washing it. We were preparing it and packaging it, putting it into a pack. We had a half a dozen patents on just the pack itself, how it functioned in order to be able to deliver this experience. So it's quite sad that that was the state of affairs. And in hindsight, if no one knew how much money we raised, the company would still be chugging along and it would be very successful at this point. So I suspect at some point it will come back. Mm. So how did you end up dealing with the whole situation with Gisera? Yeah, well, look, I think, you know, you got to be willing to do whatever it takes. And to me, that was a great journey. I learned so much. I taught a, a class at Harvard Business School where I unpacked all my blind spots. And that was a great cathartic experience. And I remember when I went into the class, a lot of the students, these first year and second year MBA students, had already made up their mind about what I, who I was and what the Juicero story was. And after the class, they were, you know, not all, but I would say most of them were moved at, you know, what happened and what could have been and the experiences. And I'm still in contact with many of them. And it was a beautiful experience. But, you know, to me, it led me to Sprouts. And, and I look at sprouts where most people thought of sprouts or think of sprouts as a garnish, as a side dish, right? And the two predominant sprouts were alfalfa sprouts and mung bean sprouts. And the reality is, you know, every seed is sproutable. And so in the course of me moving to the desert, I started to sprout a lot. And within 30 days, most of my calories were coming from sprouts that I was growing in one cubic foot, and it was blowing my mind. And the fact that you can grow sprouts without soil, without sunshine, in days, not weeks, months, or years, was just the, the most mind-boggling, extraordinary thing that I could imagine. And so I did something, and you heard about my background, right? It was the hardest thing for me. I went to New York and I pitched a book to one of the largest publishers in the world, Macmillan, and they bought my book and I wrote the Sprout book, which is 288 pages with citations and 60,000 words was really challenging for me to write. And now the book, the Sprout book, is in the seventh printing tens of thousands of copies in print, 
and it's in the top 1% of all books on Amazon and, and people are sprouting around the world. And I, I like pinch myself that I get to be the person who is the advocate for sprouts to share this message. And also I'm dumbfounded that no one had really been promoting sprouts over the last 20 or 30 years since Ann Wigmore or Steve Meyerwitz or Victoros Kavinskas kind of left the scene. Yeah, well, your book's great. I have tabs all through the book on favorite sections. But for those who don't know sprouts, let's talk about sprouts in general. So do all vegetables begin as an edible sprout or they're just, because technically they're seeds. I remember as a child, like in school, you know, you do the lima bean thing with the paper towel, right? And then we did uh, other seeds that way. So fundamentally, when it talks, you know, sprouts, are all vegetables sprouts? So all vegetables start have seeds as their reproductive organs that sprout and germinate and grow. So short answer is yes. Like we need seeds, except if you're dealing with Monsanto, where they have plants that have no seeds, or if now you can buy like watermelon that's seedless and all this hybridized, genetically modified crap that doesn't have seeds that won't reproduce. But in nature, fruits and vegetables have seeds because that's how they reproduce and continue their evolutionary process. So Sprouts, how did you gain all your knowledge? Was it just through your own journaling and when you're talking to, you know, chefs and scientists and nutritionists? How did you develop all the content and the knowledge that you needed to write a 288-page book? Was it through just your own exploratory process and journey? Yeah, I mean, I had been sprouting for over 25 years. So I was very familiar with sprouting. I just never thought of it as the panacea that it really was. And so once I kind of tuned in out of necessity, right, I wasn't planning on writing the book, right? Originally, I was just planning on feeding myself. But it turns out there was such nuance to sprouting and there were different timings and different water levels and different processes for different types of seeds, whether it's the brassicas or the legumes or the gelatinous seeds or the protein seeds. So when when I looked at those, I felt that I was confused. Now, I was very orderly because this was, to me, this was life or death, right? If I was going to survive, I needed to sprout. So I became very disciplined in my structuring and I took notes. And so basically my journals became the outline for the how-to part of the sprouts. And then I went to a recipe developer named Lita Scheintau, who developed the recipes for Oprah's book. And that was really incredible. And I said, look, I want to do recipes for my book so people know what to do with sprouts, and I want them to be delicious. So we had a standard and a criteria for the recipes in the book to be all plant-based, all raw, and about 50% of each recipe would be sprout-based. 
So there would be ways for people to get sprouts into their diet and not be as restrictive as just sprouts. So I'm curious, what has your grocery bill dramatically reduced when you decided, you know, sprouting is not just flavorful food. It's like the staple. Like, I, I can't imagine, you know, how much did you reduce your grocery bill? I mean, believe it or not, Donna, I think that if I stuffed my face with sprouts, it would be hard for me to eat $2 worth of sprouts a day. Which is pretty significant. So seniors, um, fixed income, people that aren't seniors that are in fixed income, college students, and even people that are in impoverished. I mean, can't sprouts be the answer for like solving kind of the oh, economic 100%. divide for those who have and who, those who don't? A hundred percent. You know, I did a podcast with Marion Williamson in April 2020, right in the beginning of the pandemic. And the main topic that we were talking about was food justice and food equality. And if you think about this, and I don't know when this podcast is going to drop, but California is in a drought and 40% of the vegetables in the United States come from California. And it takes about 50 times more water to grow mature broccoli than it does to grow broccoli sprouts. So you can literally get a pound of broccoli sprouts with a gallon of water. But if you were to grow it in a garden on traditional agriculture, it would take about 50 gallons of water over a six-month period to grow mature broccoli. So the water utilization, the environmental, there's so many benefits to sprouts. Yeah, and I think what a great, you know, go back to user experience, going into food kitchens and any, you know, a lot of cities have, you know, have public gardens now where they want, you know, people, you know, community gardens, but I've seen in the cities and major metros and I've seen it in San Francisco and New York, there's, there's public gardens where instead of, you know, where an extra garbage can might be for that junk food, there's like a tomato, you know, like garden and it's like help yourself, right? Right. Sprouts as an interactive and kind of fun thing to grow, which just I could see, you know, these little pop-up, sprout pop-ups, <laughs> right? That could be in senior communities and in shelters and get people connecting with food again. Because, you know, food in general and conversation of food are oftentimes the the equalizer, right? And, and breaking down cultural barriers. And so the experience and interactive that you created going back to your design, as well as like the Juicera, and you're going sprouting, there's a commonality, there's a common thread there of that connecting and getting that cultural response. Well, I look at sprouts, Donna, as food, right? So I look at sprouts as vegetables, like they're not like sprouts. I look at broccoli, you've got big broccoli and little broccoli and big alfalfa and little alfalfa and big radish and little radish. And basically, the seed itself is the entire history of the plant. And the future of the plant is all in that dormant seed. And when you sprout that seed, it's like beginning its transformation into life. And so I look at sprouts as this very, very powerful living vegetable food, right? I look at sprouts, number two, as vitamins and minerals. So all 13 vitamins, all minerals, calcium, magnesium, manganese, 
prebiotics, probiotics, polyphenols, bioflavonoids that sprout your vitamins and minerals. So as opposed to taking like something like the Flintstones chewable vitamins or some synthetic multivitamin or a protein powder, you can take a handful of sprouts and like a handful of garbanzo bean sprouts is 35 grams of protein and 380 calories Plus, they're enzymatically rich. They've got vitamin C. They've got soluble and insoluble fiber. And I would argue that most of the health professionals would agree with me that you're better off getting your nutrition from food rather than supplements. And if you're going to do that, sprouts are the best food to do that with. And then third, you you look at this sprouts are medicine, right? You can literally treat most chronic and acute illnesses with sprouts. Well, I mean, if you had the knowledge that you do now on, on sprouts, it sounds, you know, you would have been able to probably assist your family, right? And other people along the way, just, just eating healthier and more con- be just more conscious. Oh my God, I'm helping so many people around the world. It feels so good. And I've learned more about sprouts since my book came out in April 2020 than in the in the years leading up to it. Because people are constantly asking me questions. I'm constantly having to dig deeper into the research. I've formed a deeper relationship, you know, with a data scientist and with a, you know, the lead professor of broccoli research, broccoli sprout research at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, who's a nutritional biochemist, Je- Dr. Jed Fahey. And there's so much information that we are learning that's going out there. I mean, who would believe there are 4,000 peer-reviewed white papers alone on broccoli sprouts and sulforaphane? 4,000 papers on broccoli sprouts. And so I think there's we're just scratching the surface. And I think that sprouts are going to become as ubiquitous as lettuce and any other superfood on the planet. Well, sprouts are always at the market. They're always just kind of a little to the side of things. Like there's the lettuce and they're kind of like, you know, usually kind of like shoved to the side, not like the primary show, show girl. But my first job was in sprouts and I would get up really early. Uh, it started at 7 a.m. It was a summer job. And we would do the cultivation of sprouts on these big still beds, right? And, and, and rake them and, and then eventually harvest them and then package them, right? And I get really proud because I go to the market and, and I would see them. And these are typically at smaller grocery stores, but but that was such a, a fun experience too, because to me it was just gardening. But you don't need, I think for the you know people that are listening to this, like you can start just with a mason jar or a jar and some seeds and we could change the world. So let's talk about that. Like how easy is it for somebody to get started? I, I mean... It's the easiest thing ever. You know, there's a whole chapter in the Sprout book called Junkyard Dog, where I talk about taking things that would normally go into the garbage or recycle bin and using them for sprouting. And the fact that you can grow sprouts without soil, sunshine, sprouting medium, etc., that you could literally grow in a jar or unbleached paper towel with water for pennies a serving, that... It's just the beginning of the possibility, which only came to me out of the necessity 
because otherwise, you know, for me, I would always go to a Whole Foods or I'd go to a vegan restaurant or I had options. When I was in the desert, I didn't see the options. So for someone who's living in a food desert or they're living in the inner city or something, you know, their choices are fast food. So I want to, you know, what my message is sprouts are fast food, right? You grow them. You always have them to eat. You can just take them and start eating them. And that sprouts are the beginning of food equality and food justice in America. So what's next? What do you have going into the, the rest of the year and the next three years? Are we going to see another book or? I mean, right now, you know, I'm working with seed suppliers on traceability and quality of seeds. I'm working on a peer-reviewed white paper on sprout safety revisited after 24 years because it just nothing, you know, triggers me more to hear that sprouts aren't safe when in fact they are incredibly safe. And that if there were any food recalls around sprouts, they were coming from fast food chains where there was cross-contamination with meat and animal products. And so really focusing on, you know, getting all the data, data that could have full citations and have it peer reviewed so people can understand the safety of sprouts. And how do you get people to go all out on sprouts like you have? Well, look, I think that if you look at hospitals where, you know, I can't even tell you how many hospitals in the United States have a McDonald's in the hospital, right? If you think about the dietary programs of a registered dietitian of what they have to work with into recommending, you know, food after people are coming out of these heinous and extreme treatments, whether it's chemotherapy or surgery or quadruple bypass surgery and the like, that we have to have the, the conversation going and people have to be receptive to, to listen. So in some cases, you have to let people hit their bottom. It's unfortunate. But it's important that when they do hit their bottom, you got to be able to hand them the sprout book and you got to be able to hand them some sprouts and share with them different ways that they could change their life for the best. So is your brother now vegan? I would say my brother is probably 99% vegan. Wow. That's a big metamorphosis. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the whole thing is people have to understand the why. And when he understood how unhealthy it was for him and how the processed food was an inflammatory diet. And, you know, after three strokes and a heart attack, if you want to live, you got to be willing to make some changes because, you know, four strikes, you're out. That was Doug Evans. Doug says he still remembers what he would order every time he would go to a McDonald's. Are you ready for this? He would order a quarter pounder, a nine-piece chicken nugget, a large fry, a vanilla shake, and even an apple pie or sundae to top it off. To highlight how much his eating habits have changed since his come-to-plants moment in 1999, Doug says that even without sprouts, he now consumes more than a half ton of produce each year. What a difference 22 years can make. And no more drive throughs for Doug. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, 
with additional editing and music provided by Nota Lab.